and amen. Thank you, music team, for leading us in that. Well, back in September, we began our new series called The Word, uh, where we've been looking at what God teaches us through the Bible, through the literal written word that he's given to us, because it's, it's more than just a collection of stories and, and songs and poems and history. It's more than that, the word is itself Jesus. And John tells us in his gospel that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The very word itself became flesh and walked among us as Jesus. And not only does he, is he, and in, we, in him we see the fulfillment of every promise of, throughout the Old Testament, we also see that he is living and active in our lives today. As Hebrews 10, or as Hebrews chapter 4 puts it, that the word is living and active. It speaks to us. It's not just words written on a page that sit there on a shelf, but that can speak to us today. That it is God's very words to us, living and active. Right? He speaks to us truth and invites us into relationship with him today. So after that, we, we began looking at the ways in which Jesus specifically tells us more about himself, who he is, particularly in the Gospel of John with these I am statements that Jesus gives, revealing himself to be not only God, but also the savior of humanity walking with his people. And in this new year, we've been looking through red-letter words. These are the words that Jesus spoke directly to us about how to find life, about himself, how we're supposed to live, what his kingdom on this earth actually looks like for us today. And so as we have been walking through this, we've started in the, seri- or the Sermon on the Mount, this series, and Pastor Dustin opened us up with the Beatitudes, telling us what the kingdom of God looks like in the lives of his followers how, how we are the salt and the light of this world, being ambassadors of a kingdom through the ways in which we live and love those around us. And on this morning, we're continuing to look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, the next few passages that he continues to speak on, in which he's describing kingdom behavior, what it looks like for people who are part of his kingdom to live and to act in this world. Uh, so, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be starting at verse 17, and then we'll jump around a little bit there afterwards. Uh, but as we walk through the passage today, I, I want us to see what Jesus teaches us about the importance of living in relationship with him. Not only that, but the great hope that we have in relationship with him to have all that we need to live in life, in truth, and in freedom, in the way he's called us to and the great promises that he set before us to help us do that. So we're going to be reading Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 17 to 26, then we'll jump from, uh, to verse 38 there. So Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law, until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, but 
and, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. And truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. We'll jump to verse 38, and we'll finish up to verse 42 there. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Some very light and easy reading teaching this morning, isn't it? Right? If you, if you follow through with the story of God working with humanity throughout the, the entire story of the Bible, we see that God has worked with humanity in many different ways. And in particular, throughout the Old Testament, so the, the time period before Jesus was born into the world and physically walked here, it, it described God working with his people in one way, specifically the law. That was one of the larger ways that God spoke directly and more firmly to his people. So he, he gave them these 613 commandments in order for his people to follow him, to live in right relationship with him. So he said, if you follow these commandments and are faithful to obey them, then I will live in relationship with you. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 28, be careful to obey all these regulations I'm giving you so that it may go well with you and your children after you because you will be doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord your God. Right? Sin came into the world back in the book of Genesis through our disobedience and choice to live as God, for us to choose what our own idea of right and wrong is and to instead push aside God's idea of what right and wrong is. And so as the world from Genesis chapter 3 is sinking deeper and deeper into sin, God decided to work with humanity. He chose to work with us to bring us back into relationship. And so he chose a man named Abraham, and he said, I will work with you if you will be faithful to me, and I will grow you into a nation, and I will work with this people group until they are finally entering into my rest and are able to be in relationship with me again. And so after Abraham come his descendants, and they grow into this nation of Israel where God gave them these 613 commandments, the law. So they grew into this amazingly large nation, and he gave them this rules to follow him in order to live in relationship. Now, 600 laws might seem quite burdensome, but if you look at it in, in respect to this is the way to have relationship with God, there actually is a way to live knowing him through relationship is incredible. It was a great promise, even if it was seemingly impossible to live up to, but it wasn't complete, right? While, while people could obey God's commands, it was impossible to live up to the law perfectly, right? We make mistakes. We, we hurt people out of our own hurt, 
And while the law and the sacrificial system made amends for those things and were helpful in identifying sin, it wasn't useful in actually taking away our sin. Hebrews 10, chapter 4 puts it like this. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So this was where the law was at. And coming back to the time of Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus came, as he said, not only to be the fulfillment of the law, but as well to reveal what the law actually meant, the heart of the law. Not just the letters directly and what they spoke, but what was behind it, the intent of it. Because by the time Jesus had come around, by the time he was born into the world, Israel had had their law for quite some time, and it, it devolved into a legalism. It devolved from a law where they could learn about how to live in right relationship with their creator to a legalism to a, our ultimate goal and objective in life is to live up to the law. And so it turned from this law that gave life through relationship with God to a burdensome set of definitions of what you could and could not do. So for instance, uh, one of the extra rules that they gave, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the people who explained the law and helped the people to understand, said that uh, for instance, on the Sabbath, there was only so much work you could possibly do. And while the commands of the law said, you shall not work on the Sabbath, they took those in their own ways and started defining what work was to the point where you couldn't even snuff out a candle or light a candle on the Sabbath day. You couldn't walk more than a kilometer on the Sabbath because that would be considered work. And so it turned from this law that would give life and help us to see that there is life in our creator if we live in obedience to him to a strict set of observing these rules that actually push us further away in relationship from our creator and draw us further away from others as well. It would have kind of been like um, understanding one of Aesop's fables, the tortoise and the hare, in a little bit of a different way, right? The meaning of that story is that slow and steady wins the race. But for them, it would have been like reading the story and getting to the end of it and the moral being, don't take naps, otherwise you'll lose kind of thing, right? It's It's missing the point. They hear the law, they understand what the words are, but they don't get the purpose behind it. They don't see that it is to draw us into relationship with our Creator. And they only chose to interpret it in ways that benefited themselves and broke relationships in the process. So as Jesus comes and starts speaking to these different categories, he, he starts speaking on murder in the section that we're talking about today, and, and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees would have known that it was wrong to murder. It was one of the Ten Commandments, in fact. But they would still abuse and berate people with their words. They would still choose to look down on... Ooh, that's new. <laughs> um, the bottom right black button there? I don't know if that'll work. Well, there we go. Um, <laughs> but... Oh, now i got to find my spot again here. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, but uh, again, Jesus came to show us that our attitude towards the law was what actually leads us to these things. It's not that we are inclined to murder. It's that out of our hatred towards one another, as we berate and abuse people, that leads us to a place where we want to murder. And so Jesus says we shouldn't let our anger break apart relationship takes it a step further to help us understand. Right? They followed the letter of the law, do not murder, but missed the heart of the law to love one another. 
And so as, as we walk through this passage today and kind of what we read in a, a few of the parts we missed as well, there's, there's six different places that Jesus corrects their understanding and helps them to see what the law was actually pointing to. And so he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, six different times. And if you notice, each of these six different times, he not only helps us to understand the heart of the law, but these are six different places where relationship was breaking down within community. These were some of the more important ways in which relationships were being torn apart, communities were being torn apart. In our anger, where, where we call each other fools and despise each other, maybe not in our outward actions, but in our hearts. In our communities, where we allow lust in our eyes and heart to degrade the way we see one another. Right? In our marriages, where, where selfishness matters more than forgiveness and love. In our words, in our oaths that we take where we shouldn't lie to one another but still do. In our hurt with our enemies where we return hurt and hate back on our offenders like Pastor Dustin is going to preach on next week, so I won't talk about that too much. But Jesus didn't come, as he said, to get rid of the law but to give, or to give us more law, but to help us understand what it actually meant and to show us what this was. And the rules were given, again, for the purpose of being in right relationship with God and with others. And that's what the law was purposed to do. That's why David in Psalm 119, he talks about the goodness of the law in almost every one of the 176 verses. He says, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light for my path. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. David seemed to understand that the law was more than just a set of rules to follow that in order to be good, but it was an invitation to live in relationship with our creator again, with God and with others and humanity in the way we were supposed to. So while the law pointed to the outward actions of a person, Jesus tells us that it's got to sink deeper than that. It's got to make an impact in our heart, in our ways, in our mind, in the ways that we think, the ways that we choose to treat one another. And that change that it must make is deeper than any course correction of actions. We must allow Jesus to sink into our hearts to make an internal change. It's, it's the promise that Ezekiel, or that God spoke to Ezekiel hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The work God, the work God wants to do in you and in me is to give us hearts of flesh, purpose to love him and to love others. And it's not necessarily obvious, right? You can't tell just by looking at a person if they've got a changed heart. But that's kind of the point because that's what the law required, right? If you look to some of the requirements of the law, it required circumcision, a physical change in your flesh in order to be accepted by the law. But as Paul says in Romans 2, right, the change that matters isn't a physical change in our flesh, but a change in our hearts, a circumcision of the heart that isn't done by the hands of men, but by God. An inward change that only God can do as we live in relationship to him. Internal change over external change. That is the difference between a true and a false follower of Jesus. And he makes that point at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and work miraculous and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I remember as a kid when I'd read this verse, I always had a hard time understanding it because if, if someone had the faith, for instance, enough to see God work miracles, to drive out demons in his name, to, to speak prophecy, and yet for them to meet him face to face and for him to say, I never knew you, how is that possible? But I think that in that we also see what the point of what Jesus is getting at. Because I argue that we would do that every time we make self-righteousness our outward actions more important than loving others and loving God. Right? Jesus isn't saying that we should make the law our ultimate purpose in life, but to make love the ultimate purpose of our lives, the way we treat one another. And that is the difference between knowing a lot about Jesus and knowing him. It's only those who do the will of the Father that enter the kingdom of heaven. And we can't know his will for us outside of relationship with him. Now, I realize that as we walk through a passage like this today, it can be fairly heavy as well, because first of all, he starts out by saying, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he goes on to say, you shouldn't even treat or speak in anger in relationships to break apart. We should control our eyes in the way we look at each other. I mean, it's a pretty hard standard to live up to. And it seems impossible, but the good news is that he's made a way for us to do this. We can truly know God in relationship because Jesus has made a way for us. I, I, and again, I say it seems impossible because if no one could live up to the standard of the law that was already given, how on earth could we live up to the standards that Jesus is trying to perfect in us? It's not just the do not murder. It's again, don't let anger break apart relationship. Don't show or treat each other con with contempt. When Jesus says, but I tell you, do not lust in your heart, always speak truth, show no contempt, how do we live up to this? If we can't even keep ourselves from murdering at points, how could we ever live without contempt? To which Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law. Jesus came to bridge the gap between us that the law and him that the law never could, right? Even though it was supposed to bring us closer in relationship with him, no one has ever really obeyed the law well enough to earn that relationship. We've all gone our own way. We've all chosen to be God in some parts of our, our lives or in every part of our lives. But Jesus fulfilled the righteousness of the law by obeying it. And not only that, but he absorbs the cost of our sin and, and gives us his own righteousness. I have come to fulfill the law on your behalf. This past week at youth group, uh, we were meeting beforehand as youth leaders, and uh, Ryan Grinwald was sharing a devotion with us about something that he'd been learning at men's Bible study. And as they were looking through the book of Philemon, uh, it, it describes the book of a runaway slave named Onesimus. So he, he runs away from his master Philemon, and he ends up finding Paul, who, again, wrote most of the New Testament. Uh, and he finds this man named Paul, and so he begins to listen to him and listen to his teachings, and he becomes a believer. And so after a while, Onesimus is serving Paul, and then Paul encourages him to go back to Philemon. And so he writes the letter of Philemon. Uh, and in it, he describes, or he encourages Philemon, this slave owner, to take back Onesimus as not just a slave, but as a brother. Now, 
the punishment for a runaway slave under Roman rule was that you were allowed to kill a runaway slave if they left your household. So not only was Paul asking Philemon to forgive the, the debt of justice that was owed to him for this slave running away and leaving all his work behind, but Paul is asking Philemon to accept this once slave, Onesimus, now as a brother instead and to treat him as family. So not only is he asking him to forgive the debt of justice, but also to forgive the real debt of losing a slave, of losing property and losing value. And as, as Ryan was sharing with us the devotion uh, that evening, I remember he said that in order to forgive, it, it requires an absorption of hurt. It requires an absorption of the payment or the price in some way. Love means absorbing the hurt, taking it into ourselves instead of putting it back on the other. Now Philemon had every right to, again, put his slave to death, not accept him back as a brother, but Paul said, accept him and do these things, not because you know, it's the right thing to do, but because that's what Jesus did for us. Right? It costs us when we love others. To follow Jesus in the way that he's asking us to, it leaves us tired, it leaves us empty in ways, and it leaves us in places of weakness. And none of us really like feeling weak, but Paul says that he will gladly boast about his weaknesses so that, power, that Christ's power can rest on him. It is in our weakness that Jesus shows us that he is strong. As we go to those places of burdening ourselves, of allowing the cost of others to be weighed upon ourselves, we can rely on him for the strength that we need. Right? The weaker we are, the more Jesus promises to be our strength. And that is what Jesus invites us to do, to become weak. Not because he wants us to suffer or take away our joy, but because he lived that first. Not because he wants us to follow commands that he can't, but because he lived up to every standard in the Sermon on the Mount already. Right? Jesus doesn't ask us to follow him without first being our example. Do you see that Jesus already lived up to these standards? Right? When Jesus was insulted and mocked, he returned no words of hatred, but absorbed their hatred with his own love. Right? When Jesus was slapped and beaten, he turned his cheek. He absorbed the cost of hurt in his own body. When Jesus was stripped both of his cloak and his tunic and his shirt, he did so willingly. Right? When Jesus was made to carry the cross by the Roman soldiers, he went obediently. All of this at the expense of his own suffering. But 1 Peter 4.8 reminds us that love covers over a multitude of sin. And do you see what Jesus' willingness to enter into that suffering has accomplished? What his willingness to take the price of our sin has done for us? Salvation, eternal life for all who believe in him. And not only that, but relationship with God here and now today. Right? His word is living and active. It speaks to us here and now. That is who our God is, that he invites us into relationship, not one day when he will wipe away all the tears from our eyes, but here and now when he promises to walk alongside us through everything that we face. He speaks to us today, and what he's saying today to us is follow him. Lay down your life and follow me. To die to ourselves, to die to our dreams, what our emotions tell us we deserve, and instead live in obedience to Jesus. Now, I, uh, maybe a good story to share, throwing some of the junior high boys under the bus, but that's okay. Um, I remember this past November, we had, we had an incredible opportunity to go to Camp Caroline for one of the junior high retreats. 
And I remember that first night we had an incredible conversation. We were all uh, sitting in the room. There's like six bunk beds in there. We were all crammed in there. And we were chatting about um, the cycle of hurt. And I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard the saying, hurt people hurt people. So if you've experienced hurt in your life, chances are you're going to, out of that hurt, hurt someone else. And so as we were having this conversation, we were, we were responding to the truth of it all. And we were saying, yeah, we, we recognize that hurt people hurt people, but our role is to love others, is to forgive and love. And we all kind of agreed upon that, kind of, as we were talking about that. And we said, yeah, like, as Christians, this is what we believe. It's better to live in forgiveness and love. And that was the first night's conversation. And what I found very interesting was the second night's conversation. Maybe we had a lot less sleep that night, chances are. Uh, but as we were talking the next night, we began by sharing stories of ways that we were actually hurt by people. And so as we were sharing stories, each one of us, but times that we'd experienced hurt in our own lives, we began asking the question, okay, they hurt you. What would it have looked like for you to show them love? And very quickly, I noticed that in all of our conversations, it very quickly shifted from the previous night of forgiveness and love to a conversation about justifying why these people didn't deserve our love, right? Whether they had good upbringings or whether they had better families than we thought we did or whether it was, you know, them just being wealthier than us. There are good reasons in our own minds why we shouldn't love others and forgive them. Maybe they're more popular, but these were the reasons that we started to give as to why it was okay for us to continue being angry at them and to continue to hold on to the hurt. Right? When rubber hits the road, when, when our beliefs are put to the test, we, we come to see that what Jesus asks of us is impossible outside of a relationship with him. Right? To love our enemies, we may outwardly do that, but still harbor disdain for them in our minds and the ways that we speak hatred to them, to ourselves even, not to anyone else, to which Jesus says, follow me. That's the beautiful invitation of it all. He's not expecting us to be perfect. He does ask that of us, but he says, you're not going to be able to do it on your own, only with my help. We serve a God who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who has been tempted in every way just as we are. And because of this, we can boldly approach the throne of grace asking for what we need receiving grace and mercy in the times that we need. But if you keep reading through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points out some ways in which we can tangibly rely on him for the help that we need to do this impossible task. Right? He says, pray to me. He says, come to me asking for your daily bread and I will provide for you. Don't worry. Look at the sparrows. If, if I take care of even those, will I not much more take care of you? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Right? Jesus promises to be the help that we need him to be. We have to ask him for it, and the beautiful thing is he's made the way for us to have that relationship with him. So the ultimate goal isn't just to avoid sin. Our ultimate goal is to love, to live in love in relationship with God, in relationship with others in love, and to follow Jesus in the example he set for us to turn our cheeks, to forgive, to do the impossible task, to submit ourselves to God, laying down our willingness to put ourselves first at the cost of another, just as Jesus did. And remember what that love covered the multitude of sins for our own benefit. Doing as Jesus did, absorbing the cost into himself for the benefit of the other, I realize how heavy of a burden this can feel like. 
But there's a freedom and a lightness in Jesus that makes all of these commands never a burdensome. He tells us that his burden is easy and his yoke is light, and he asks us and invites us into relationship with him. And in that place, Jesus promises to be the strength in our weakness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your great faithfulness to us. Father, we thank you for the the willingness and help that you show us. Father, for the faithfulness you have continued to show us in walking through us, or walking with us in relationship, Father, throughout all of history. You've had a plan to draw us back in relationship with you. And Father, thank you that we can truly know you in relationship. God, there's so many ways in which we get it wrong, in which we lose focus on what is important. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us through your spirit to keep our eyes set on you. Help us to recognize the ways we can live in love. And Father, for the ways that we will naturally turn back to legalism, for the ways we naturally lean back on our sin, Father, we thank you that there is forgiveness in you. Thank you that there is every payment of every price in you, Father. So Jesus, we ask that you'd help us to understand more of your forgiveness and live more in your love. Thank you for these things. In your name, Jesus.